Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. We are just three days away from our 31st annual Capital Conference, so if you haven't registered yet, registration closes Saturday, so what are you waiting for? Go to NAHU.org now, and while you register, listen to Marcy, John, and Chris talk about one of the most pertinent issues our industry is facing, the potential for a public option or a single-payer healthcare system. So let's start with some basic definitions, since these terms are thrown around by both sides of the political spectrum with various meanings. What is single-payer, and what is a public option? So we talk about this a lot and the fact that words really matter. And as Dan noted, sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, but it's really important to focus on exactly what they mean. And so there's a difference between Medicare for all, single payer, public option, Medicare buy-in and universal health care. And I'm going to give a little, just a little nutshell definition for each one of these. If you like more information, we have a three-hour course on single-payer that you can take that'll go into a deeper dive on all of them. And we also have some folks that are joining us at Capital Conference to speak on this as well. But just in a general definitions, universal healthcare just means everyone has access to healthcare. It doesn't mean everyone is necessarily enrolled. It just means everyone has the opportunity and access to do so. Medicare for all is similar to what it sounds like, where we would be using the Medicare system to deliver that access to coverage for everyone. A Medicare buy-in would open up a certain population to be able to buy into the Medicare system. So some examples of this have been lowering the Medicare eligibility age, or in some instances, some proposals have even would allow for small groups to go into the Medicare system. None of these have passed yet. Single payer is also kind of what it sounds like when there's one single government-run entity that is providing that access to coverage and care. And then a public option, what we typically think of when we hear this now, is a public option where the government would negotiate rates with carriers, and those plans would be offered alongside those that are offered in the private market and would compete alongside each other in a public option alongside the private market. We've also seen in some states that it's not the Medicare that they're trying to open up for a buy-in, but it's the possibility of opening up their Medicaid to certain populations to be able to buy in. So similar to where the Medicare buy-in would possibly lower the age qualifier or open up to a different market for small groups. Some states like New Mexico have floated the option of opening up their Medicaid markets to different populations to allow them to access care through their Medicaid plans. And then we also have to be really careful when we're talking about these things because Human as varied as those terms are, even more terms are coming out to define some of these things. California just released a study a couple of months ago where they're t- calling it unified financing instead of a universal health care or a single payer. 
So we really have to kind of get our magnifying glasses out and take a look when some of these terms are coming out. I think all of these have nuances and gradations to them. I mean, some of the public options are only for the individual markets. Other of the public options say that, yes, they are for the individual market, but also the consumer who's with an employer could choose them. So each of these have different nuances and they are different depending on which bill you look at. And the level of public versus private of them, some of them would be public options, but they would look to the consumer to be Blue Cross or Aetna actually running them, even if it is done through public financing with public negotiated rates. So I think there is a, quite a variety to the way these look. And so you really have to look very careful at the proposals as they come out to really understand their effect on the overall market. But they all have in common is government intervention into actually running health insurance market. Chris, John, in your estimates as our representatives on Capitol Hill, what is the political viability of Medicare for all? So several Democrats use the term Medicare for all for really for being a Canadian style healthcare system. And they use the term Medicare because Medicare is actually very popular with the American public. Seniors are very happy with their Medicare services. Their children and grandchildren are very happy to have those programs for their seniors. And there are adjustments to Medicare, like Medicare Advantage, that exist. However, what's being proposed with Medicare for All does not involve any Medicare Advantage and really isn't the Medicare system at all. It is really every aspect of healthcare being run by the federal government. And so for that reason, I actually think that is where you, when people start to really look at it, that its prospects for really passing go down. Currently in this country, we are already headed for only three to four years before the current Medicare system goes bankrupt. And if you look at proposals that Bernie Sanders puts out, he's including everything that's not just in Medicare, but all health services that people under the age of 65 use, uh, from things that involve prenatal care to adolescence, to all sorts of services that you simply don't need after the age of 65 because their diseases and problems change as, as we develop and go on. The Sanders proposal also includes things that are not in Medicare, like long-term care insurance and other sorts of programs. And you start really getting to the point that this becomes so exceedingly expensive that it's impossible for the federal government to do, even if you were to collapse Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other healthcare programs in, to do it without a tremendous raise in taxes. And it really is that tremendous raise in taxes that I think ultimately causes it to not have political viability. And so, yes, the bills will get reintroduced for Medicare for all this year, but you don't see the real political will to get it done. In fact, over the last three years, you've actually seen the support decrease in this country. It's gone down in several different categories, particularly amongst women and minorities. You've seen popularity of Medicare for all go down. You've seen a slight uptick during this pandemic because of problems that I think the healthcare system has been exposed to have with, with trying to address issues of COVID. But overall, it really hasn't had the same level of popularity. And for that matter, that is why President Biden did not run on it when he was running for re-election, because I also don't think it's not only political viable, but it's also not broadly popular amongst the American public. And with margins this close in Congress, I think that politically, it's, it's not feasible to actually pass a Medicare for all. I know I'm asked about it all the time when people say, oh, but what are the margins? And oh, but the Democrats do have a majority. <laughs> yes, they do have a majority. They have 222 in the House. They need 218 to pass anything in the House. 
but they don't have 218 that will come together on any iteration of a public option or a Medicare for all. And the same is in the Senate. It's a pure 50-50 split. Yes, we know Vice President Harris could be a tie-breaking vote if something were to come through reconciliation on this, but it is not likely to happen. Also because they don't have 50 Democrats in the Senate that are willing to vote for any of these iterations to come together as a block of 50. They're very dispersed amongst the party and what type of plan that they would support from Medicare for all to a public option to a Medicare buy-in. So when we look at the numbers and we stack them up that way, that's where we are measuring off the viability and saying that this really isn't something that could happen in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think if Medicare for All were really trying to be passed for Congress, it's very easy to run the ads against it. And that's where it politically becomes non-viable. Medicare for All would cost each household an additional $24,000 a year in taxes. And I think that fact alone run in a nationwide campaign would quickly turn people away from Medicare for All. You've already seen those sorts of ads go down at a low level, particularly on social media, Facebook. YouTube and other areas having an impact. Those sorts of ads being put on national broadcast, I think, would truly finish off any efforts for a Medicare for all attempt. So what is the congressional support for the public option? Public option? More attractive, right? Because it makes it sound like it's an option. And that's where it gets slippery. And we see even more iterations in the public option space because the American public likes options. People like choices. So when you entitle a bill, public option, that increases the political viability of something like that passing. I think the difficulty will be for trying to pass a public option, what does that public option look like? There are so many different grades, variations, systems to that, that agreeing upon one becomes politically very hard to do. And again, I think it becomes very politically hard to do in this environment where you have the closest margins between the House and Senate in history. And so not only do you need all 50 senators plus the vice president to pass something in the Senate, the Democrats are only running the House by five votes. And so any sort of bill like that is very easy to bring down. And it can be taken out by different directions. It may be those who are pushing for public option have the bill actually taken out by those who believe single payer or nothing and are also refusing to vote for that bill. So actually trying to get to the point of passing a public option during this political environment, I think is very difficult. There are a lot of special interest groups in Washington. There's a lobbyist for every body part. What you bring to Washington is understanding about markets and how they interact and what these iterations of public options mean in terms of the viability of coverage that people get through their employer, how that's different from small group and how that's different from the individual market and how they all interact and how uh, these uh, various iterations of public options would tear apart that fabric and that careful balance between those markets. And that's why it's important that you participate in Capital Conference. And when we talk about these different iterations, I mean, in the last congressional session, we had Medicare Part E, Medicare X, Medicare LMNOP. It feels like a lot of different options to the public option. And that's why we're saying it's very hard for them all to come together because 
There are some that think a public option would be great if we opened Medicare up to a certain age demographic. Others that think it would be great if we opened it up to certain types of groups, a small group, small businesses, um, things like that, or certain socioeconomic groups. So it's very difficult to get even someone to say, well, I'm in favor of a public option. And then to go beyond that, to get everyone who likes a public option to like the same public option. It's almost as if there are too many options um, to be able to get together and actually have an agreement. And so those are the types of things that we're talking about when we're talking about different iterations and trying to get members all lined up. And it's something that works in our favor because it is confusing. And so the value that you all bring is being able to take this confusing subject matter and explain it and explain why these different ideas don't necessarily work with the system that we have today. So what would be some of the negative consequences of a public option at the federal level? Well, you're really tearing at the fabric of what makes a group viable as a group. And once you start teasing it out, you lose participation. You don't meet participation requirements. You don't have the right mix. People get into the game uh, because they're sick. You know, they're there for different motivations. The group market, uh, the employer market, people are there to work. So they are generally healthy. It's a big enough to create a, a decent risk pool. I think that there's a lot of confusion in Congress among members as to what a risk pool is and what it means and who belongs. And that's where your expertise that you can explain to your member of Congress. And there are a lot of new members of Congress who don't understand this. They hear it you know, uh, rhetorically within their own conference, but Republicans misunderstand it in their own way, much as some Democrats have it you know, the way they think about it on their side. So believe me, there's plenty of confusion to go around. And it's interesting because a lot of the issues that come up here are issues of competition. John mentioned public option can, can threaten employer-sponsored markets with participation and some other issues, but it can also threaten the private market because their prices are, are going to be lowered. They're going to be negotiated by the government and many of the, the different kind of flavors of public option that we see. And so if we have an entire market that is providing public option plans that are a lower rate negotiated by the government compared to what's offered on the private market side, there's a chance that enough numbers could go into the public option plans that it could price the private market plans out of the market. And it's really a door into a single payer or a Medicare for all system. There's also a concern that the competition on the rates would go beyond just the premiums so that in some areas, if the physicians aren't being reimbursed as much under the public option plans as they are in the private plans, if those public option plans become so popular in a certain area, are they going to price doctors out of that area? Are we going to have network adequacy issues if physicians don't want to participate in the public option plans because of what they're getting reimbursed? And so we're going to possibly see a lot of market disruption here where on, on one side, we're pulling down a lever on the premiums for public option plans, but on another, we might be moving physicians and healthcare providers out of that, that market. And so it's really important to think about some of those other pieces of competition that happen if something like this were to be introduced into our current structure. 
Many hospitals and doctors can't get by on Medicare and Medicaid rates in order to stay open. Particularly hospitals in rural America and other areas will be forced to close because they don't have the proper assistance coming in financially in order to cover their cost. Many hospitals, while they take Medicare and Medicaid patients, currently rely on the private sector employer market and an individual market and the amount, the rates that they pay to make up those differences. And so you will see closing of practices in hospitals. And the biggest burden of that would particularly be in rural America. And finally, many of these public options will actually be subsidized by private tax dollars. And so you start creating this entitlement that's actually larger than Medicare itself that will need taxpayer premiums in order to keep it afloat. And so you, the taxpayer, then begin paying for public option without even you electing to take the public option. Perhaps you were trying to stay in a different plan or stay in an employer plan, but now you will have to subsidize that public option through your tax rates. Unfortunately, the federal government is not the only entity considering the public option. States across the country are also considering implementing a public option within their borders. Can you talk about some of these proposals? Sure. And Washington State has already implemented their version of a public option. It's in the phase-in process where it is being added to their state exchange in Washington, and then eventually it will phase in so that the exchange is made up purely of the public option proposals. We are going to have a few of our members talking about what's going on in their states during Capitol Conference. One of our breakouts will have a roundtable from Washington, Illinois, and Colorado about what type of public options are happening or have been proposed there. Like I mentioned, Washington's is already in place and being phased in. Colorado and Illinois have had some proposals that have been introduced. Colorado seems to have a different iteration of public option. Almost every year they get a a new flavor that gets support there. But they've also seen on a ballot measure that a, a single payer system was voted down a couple of years ago by their citizens in Colorado. So as much as we see some of these pieces moving forward in their legislature, it's obvious when we look at those ballot initiatives that it's not what the people within that state want. Illinois is working on a study to see exactly what avenue they'd like to move forward with to try to propose a public option within their state. So they're really kind of in the, the research and innovation stage. And then California and New York are states that we hear often trying to look at either a single payer system or trying to develop some type of public option. And I think it's interesting to to see those states because we know them as kind of being outliers, as being innovators and going out into the markets and doing things first, but they've really struggled financially to be able to get something like this off of the ground. And so where we're seeing some of these larger states that are having that problem, we know some of the smaller states are, are going to have that same impact. There have been a lot of studies around um, the past couple of months talking about the impact of COVID-19 on state budgets. And this is definitely going to impact the possibility of states moving forward with any type of public option or single payer system, because if they're struggling financially as a result of COVID-19 and trying to keep people employed and covered and safe and provide stimulus, they're not going to have those funds left over to try to put together a public option system. That's one thing that they're really going to be struggling with. I know there's a lot of concern that the Biden administration will take the 1332 waiver or those state innovation waiver systems 
and um, try to maneuver around and change some of the guardrails to allow for states to use the 1332 waiver to put in place a public option or a single payer system. But even with that, yes, we might see the Biden administration approve some of these methods. But once again, when we get back to the pocketbook issue, these states are going to have a really hard time proving one of the aspects of the guardrails of those waivers, which is that it doesn't increase the federal deficit. And so they're really going to have to take the bill on all of this. And many of the states just aren't going to be able to do so. The most recent New York proposal, I know Chris was giving the statistics on the finances for Bernie Sanders plan, but in New York, their plan would cost more than their entire state budget. So you can see there that the the dollars and cents just aren't adding up when it comes to these proposals in the states. And so it's interesting to look at these things and to study the different options and the different nuances and to look and examine, you know, where the pitfalls are in the market that we kind of just talked about with the differences in competition when you have a public option in your plans. But then you also have to get down to the basics and the simplicity of can a state afford this? And more often than not, the answer is no. Yeah, I think if we see a public option anywhere in the next few years, it is most likely in the states. I think Marcy, though, lays out very clearly why it's still difficult to achieve it even there. However, we do see states who can become fixated on these things and pass this. Several years ago, Vermont itself passed its own version of single payer within its state, passed it into law, signed by the governor. And at the end of the day, it only did not happen because they couldn't actually implement it. It was not passing the state legislature or getting the governor's signature. They simply couldn't even come up with the resources to run it on itself. So that financing angle that Marcy was talking about, I think we've already seen real world experience of that in Vermont itself on them trying to do a Medicare for all. Now, a public option is obviously a much smaller endeavor than Medicare for all, but it's still going to take quite a bit of resources to pull it off in the states. But I do think it is the area that we need to be most vigilant in because I think out of the different scenarios we've discussed today, this is probably the one that is the more likely of of the scenarios of something actually passing. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? Dan, of course, we're toasting to Capital Conference again. Just a reminder, registration does close on Saturday, February 20th. And we want to make sure that your voice is heard with your meetings virtually on the Hill, and also that you're able to take advantage of all the great speakers and breakout sessions that we have. So head over to nehu.org and register today. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.